Well, good morning, and welcome to Sunday School, to our last FOF uh, Sunday School lesson. I'm glad if you have been with us as part of this series. I hope you found it edifying. We've done 24 lessons in total on the 13 chapters of this book, but we are coming to an end today with our last topic, God's Word and Guidance. And we're really going to have to compress the lesson today because not only am I starting late, but I also need to end early. So, woo, this is going to be an interesting ride. Uh, let me pray, and we'll get into the topic. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would um, bless this time and show us, Lord, that we, you have not left us derelict in terms of knowing your will. You've shown us, so help us to understand that and to fulfill your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so God's will and guidance is our last topic in our Fundamentals of the Faith series. And this is important because... I'm guessing that you or somebody that you know has often struggled with the question of, what is God's will for me? What does God want me to do? Especially when you face a significant life choice. Should I join this particular church? Should I marry this particular person? Should I pursue a career in this particular field? Should I take this particular job? Should I leave the job that I have? Should I buy this home? Should I witness the gospel to this particular person? Should I pursue this particular Christian ministry? Should I seek to become a pastor? What does God want me to do? Of course, that's a good question to ask. Always looking to do the Lord's will is a good thing to do as a Christian, but people who ask these questions often are stymied at how to arrive at an answer. Because how can you know what the Lord's will is for such specific questions like these? And these people feel like they can't just shrug their shoulders, make a decision to move on, because what if they make the wrong choice? What if they make the wrong choice? That means they will end up displeasing the Lord without intending to. They'll displease the Lord, invite his curse on their life, chastening. They'll end up wasting a lot of time pursuing something they should never have pursued. They're going to bring difficulties into their lives they could have avoided if they'd only known and followed God's will. So this is a very distressing situation. They don't want to make the wrong choice. They're afraid of doing so. So what often happens to Christians stuck in a situation like that? They're afraid of making the wrong choice, but they're not sure how to make the right choice. They don't, they don't make a choice. They just kind of stay in that agonized indecision for a long time. Maybe you've been there. I know I've definitely been there. They're searching for God's will, but they feel like they can never find out what it is, so they don't want to make a choice. Well, I've got good news for you if you've ever been there or even if you are there struggling to find God's will for your lives. You can know God's will. You can know with certainty how God wants you to act, how to make decisions even for every part of your life. So that you can be confident God is pleased and you are walking in his blessed way. You can actually know that. You can know God's will. You can escape the prison of indecision. Does that sound like I'm, I'm guaranteeing too much, promising too much? I'm not. But the thing is, you have to realize which aspect of God's will you can know and are called to pursue. Because I think what gets us so entangled sometimes is that we think we're supposed to know and fulfill God's sovereign will, which is actually impossible. When really, what we should be seeking to know and fulfill is God's commanded will, which is possible, and which gives you the specific commands and the principles to handle every decision of your life for God's glory. So that's what we're going to talk about today in this final lesson. We're looking to answer three main questions today. What exactly do we mean by God's will? How should we respond to the different aspects of God's will? And then practically speaking, how does God guide us in making decision in, decisions in our lives? So if you haven't already, turn to your last chapter, your last lesson in your FOF books, God's Will and Guidance. We won't have time to go over all the blanks, but I will refer you to a few things in there as we go along. Let's start with the first question. What exactly do we mean by God's will? I'm not sure if you've noticed yet in your study of the Bible, but when the Bible talks about God's will, different verses talk about different facets or aspects of God's will. And you need to realize this, or else the Bible is going to sound hopelessly contradictory. For example, Psalm 115.3 declares, Psalm 115.3, 
But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. It's a great verse, straightforward. Whatever God wants to do, that's what he does. Whatever he desires to do, he does. Because he's sovereign, because he's the all-powerful God, he accomplishes all his will. He accomplishes all his good pleasure. Do you believe that? But God also says in Ezekiel 18.23, Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord Yahweh, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. I don't know if you caught that. What is God saying in Ezekiel 18.23? What is he saying that he desires? Who should not perish? Right, he doesn't want anyone to perish for wickedness. He says, I don't have pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather they repent and escape my judgment. But evidently, just even from the scriptures, plenty of wicked people have died without repenting. So God's expressed desire went unfulfilled. So wait a second. Does that mean that God does not, in fact, do whatever he desires, whatever he pleases? Or take another example. Ephesians 1.11 Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things, all events, all circumstances according to the counsel of his will. Everything is happening according to his will. Ephesians 5.17, same book, later says, Ephesians 5.17, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And we might put these verses together to conclude that we can and should know all things that God is doing and seek to fulfill our part in his will. But then Ecclesiastes 11.5 comes along and says, this is Ecclesiastes 11.5, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, there's no way to know what God is doing. How does that fit with Ephesians? Has God revealed his will to us or not? Are we supposed to know it or not? Can we know it or not? We can resolve our confusion over these verses of the Bible if we recognize that there are three aspects to God's will as revealed in the Bible. Three aspects to God's will. Not three wills, three aspects to God's one will. There is God's sovereign will, there is God's desired will or will of desire, and there is God's commanded will. These overlap, but they are not the same. And we are to respond to these aspects differently. If you look in your workbooks under Roman numeral 1, letter A, number 1, we see a good definition of God's sovereign will, also called God's decretive will, which comes from his eternal decree. God's sovereign will, it says, involves his ultimate complete control over everything. Nothing happens that is not in God's plan. History is really the unfolding of God's purposes which happened exactly as he planned. God's sovereign will, this idea that his overarching plan for everything, this is what the Bible is talking about in verses like Psalm 115.3, he does whatever he pleases. In Ephesians 1.11, he does everything according to the counsel of his will. We could add Isaiah 14.24, Isaiah 14.24, which says, Yahweh of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened, and just as I have planned, so it will stand. We're talking about God's sovereign will. Everything in life happens according to this aspect of God's will. If God has not decreed it, if he has not willed it sovereignly, it will not happen. It does not happen. But if God has willed something sovereignly, will that event happen? Yes. There is no contradicting God's sovereign will. Now here's a question. Can we know God's sovereign will? Actually, yes, but only in certain situations. When? When it's already happened or when he's revealed it um, prophetically or explicitly in the Bible. We can only know God's sovereign will after the fact. This is what Ecclesiastes 11.5 was talking about when it says, you cannot know the activity of God. You cannot see and understand his total, totally his sovereign will unless it's already been revealed prophetically in the Bible or unless it's already happened. Was it God's sovereign will for me to be here teaching you Sunday school today? It was. How do you know that? 
Because I'm here and I'm teaching you Sunday school. It's already happened. It wouldn't have happened unless God willed it. Now, that's a silly example, but now consider something more poignant. If you get into an accident that leaves you with a permanent disability, was that God's sovereign will? Yes. How do you know that? Because it happened. If he did not sovereignly will that, it wouldn't have happened. So that means it fit in his overall plan for that to happen to you. No events in life, neither terrible sins that you do or that other people do to you, no tragic accidents, no happy deliverances, no great joys are random. All happens according to God's sovereign will. But you may ask, does that mean that God desires or enjoys everything that God sovereignly wills to happen? The answer is yes and no. Ultimately, yes, God desires whatever he ordains for the revelation and enjoyment of his own glory. Psalm 115.3 is true. But this does not mean that God enjoys every particular part in what he sovereignly wills. Because there's another aspect of God's will, which is God's desired will. Now, this is not in your books, though it is in the teacher, teacher guide. But I think it's still useful for you to know. The book doesn't supply an official definition. Even the teacher notes don't. So I have to give you my own working definition. So here's my description of God's desired will. God's desired will, or will of desire, involves the reflection of his character, loving what is good and beneficial, and hating what is evil and harmful. God's desired will is consistent with his sovereign will, but is not always fulfilled. For the sake of fulfilling ultimate desires, God sometimes leaves lesser desires unfulfilled, even, those lesser, even though those lesser desires are sincere and glorious. You know, sometimes Christians have trouble with this idea of God's will of desire because they cannot accept that the God of the universe would want something that he would leave unaccomplished for himself. Is he not the God in the heavens who does whatever he pleases? One erroneous theological conclusion from that assumption is that God does not desire the non-elect to be saved. If you're not elect, they would say, God doesn't really want you to come. Because if he did, he would make you come. Now, you can see the logic of that, but that is an error. Believing that God can't have lesser unfulfilled desires is an error for at least two reasons. One, because the Bible demonstrates otherwise. We already noted from Ezekiel 18 that God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but he nevertheless ordains it for many cases. In multiple places, we see that God says that he desires his people would be perfectly holy like he is. But are his people perfectly holy like he is? No, they're not. So there is a desire that is not completely fulfilled. Or perhaps most obviously, did God the Father want to unleash his wrath upon his beloved sin-bearing son? And did his son want to experience the holy, unrelenting anger of the Father? If we believe that the Father and Son love each other at all, we have to conclude the answer is no. They did not want that interruption to their love relationship. Who would? This is why Jesus even says in the garden, if possible, Father, take this cup away from me. This wasn't Jesus just having weakness in his humanness. This is him expressing his love for the Father. I don't want anything to come between us. If there's another way to accomplish salvation that doesn't involve that, let's do it. But there was another desire that both father and son felt even then. For the sake of the glory of the Trinity and the salvation of a redeemed bride, father and son laid aside a good, lesser, real desire for a greater desire. Their desire for no cross, and only uninterrupted love was real. And there would have been something terribly wrong in the Godhead if they did not feel that desire. The son's like, lay it on me, Father. I don't care if you 
put your wrath on me. That doesn't bother me. If that's the way the son felt, we'd be like, what's wrong with you? So these were real desires, and it was important that God truly feels them. But lesser desires in the Godhead often make way for greater desires. The biblical record is clear on this. But also, aren't we humans the same way? This is the second reason to reject the error. We regularly choose to do actions that we don't desire for the sake of a greater goal that we do desire. I don't know about you, but I don't like working out. (laughs) But I do like the benefits of working out. So even though I don't desire every aspect of working out, I do ultimately desire to work out. Or uh, here's a more noble example. I do not desire to discipline or to inflict pain or distress on my child. I don't desire to make Benjamin cry. If I did, if I were okay with that, that didn't cause me any compunction, there'd be something wrong with me as a parent. But I have a greater desire for him, that he be trained in right and wrong, in self-control, ultimately in the fear of God, which requires disciplining him eventually. So I set aside any good, faithful Christian parent sets aside a lesser desire for the greater desire of loving my kid and loving God in the most important ways. Now you may say, this is all nice abstract theology, Dave, but what does this will of desire have to do with our lives? Why does this matter for us? Well, for one, understanding God's desired will helps us make better sense of what the Bible says. But a more important reason is Understanding God's desired will helps us answer the problem of evil and pain in our existence. Because what is the common objection? Anyone familiar with the world's evil or who has gone through extreme suffering asks, how could a good God ordain this? How could he possibly determine this to be good? The only way to answer those aching questions of the heart are by understanding the connection between God's desired will and sovereign will. No, in one sense, God did not desire this sin to occur. He did not desire this tragedy to occur. He did not desire to put you through this suffering. He's not a callous God. He doesn't enjoy blasting people with pain or subjecting the world to the poison of sin. That's not who he is. But he has an ultimately good and loving purpose which he is working out even through sin and suffering. And we understand that. When we understand that truth, we can rightly say, whatever my God ordains is right. And he does all things well. And if you're still a little bit unconvinced, God himself says this in the Bible. Lamentations 3, Lamentations 3, I found myself thinking about this passage now and then. In the midst of unimaginable suffering, God's just judgment has come upon Judah and Jerusalem because the people would not follow him. Jeremiah has witnessed it. He's seen people starve to death. He's seen people being carted off to captivity. It's like an apocalyptic zone. And all of it happened because God brought wicked Babylon upon Israel. He's seen God's sovereign will come to pass, but it's devastating. And yet, where does Jeremiah turn in the midst of his incredible sorrow? He reminds himself of God's heart. It says a number of things, but what I want to draw your attention to is Lamentations 3, verses 31 to 36. Lamentations 3, 31 to 36 where Jeremiah says, By the Spirit of God, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion, according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit, 
Of these things the Lord does not approve. Do you see? Even while he realized God had sovereignly ordained it, he knew in God's heart that those were not the kinds of things that God loved. To see wicked people prosper and crush other people into the dust. God does not love that. You know, what he loves is to restore his people. And Jeremiah knew he would do that. He would do that one day. So let us never conclude, based on God's sovereign will, that God innately desires sin or suffering or approves of these things. By no means. He merely ordains them as the way that he would accomplish his ultimately good and glorious plan. So God's sovereign will is what he ordains. God's desired will is what, he's wish, is what he wishes for, but doesn't always fulfill for the sake of fulfilling greater wishes. There's one more aspect to God's will that we not only can know, but we are responsible to know. And that's God's commanded will, also called God's preceptive will from the word precept or rule. We get a definition of God's commanded will on the next page under number two. God's commanded will is revealed through the Bible as laws or principles. It is the aspect of his will to which men are held accountable. This is the aspect of God's will that the Bible is consistently commanding for you and I to know and to do. Like we saw earlier in Ephesians 5.17, don't be foolish but know what the will of the Lord is. We also read in Romans 12.2, Romans 12.2, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We're not talking about the sovereign will here, or even God's desired will. We're talking about his commanded will. What did he reveal? He says, I want you to do this. He says, you need to know that. You need to prove that with the way you live. Probably my favorite verse for clarifying God's commanded will versus God's sovereign will is Deuteronomy 29, 29. You can turn there if you want. Otherwise, I'll just explain it to you. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The context here, the context of this verse is God through Moses is warning Israel against apostasy and also foretelling what God's curse will look like on a coming disobedient generation. So don't apostatize. And in the future, if and when there is an apostatizing generation, this is the curse. This is what it's going to look like. And you can imagine upon hearing that or reading that as an Israelite, you might be tempted to wonder, oh, when's this going to happen? Maybe I'm part of the apostatizing generation. Did God sovereignly ordain that? Or if it's not me, when's it going to come? The Israelites might be tempted to figure out the sovereign will of the Lord. But Moses redirects their thinking and energy with Deuteronomy 29, 29, when he says, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. That's very clarifying. We could restate it this way. Don't try to figure out God's sovereign secret will. That belongs to God. God wants you to focus on his revealed will, to know and obey what he actually told you, which for the Israelites was the law. Well, what is God's revealed will for us? What has God commanded? What's his commanded will for you and me? Well, too many things to list here. But it's interesting if you just look up will of God or God's will in the Bible, you'll see them attached to phrases like this. You are, it is God's will for you to believe in Jesus, John 6, 29. It is God's will for you to know, to teach, and to do everything that Jesus commanded, Matthew 28, 20. It is God's will for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, Matthew, 28, or Matthew 22, 37. It's God's will for you to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 39. It is God's will for you to be sanctified, even exercising self-control, sexual self-control over your body. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It is God's will for you to be wise and to exercise wisdom, his wisdom, in your varying circumstances and with varying people. That's Ephesians 5.15, Proverbs 4.5, Colossians 4.5. It is God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And, and we talked about this last time, it is God's will for you to suffer righteously, doing good to those who do not do good to you, 
while you entrust yourself to a God who will ultimately grant you vindication and justice. That's 1 Peter 2.15 and 4.19. So really, we Christians don't have any business saying, oh, I wish what, I knew what God's will for me is right now. If only he would tell me. Brother or sister, he did tell you. He is telling you in his word. Stop looking for the secret sovereign will. That's not for you. Devote yourself to his revealed commanded will. This is the aspect of the will of God that you can know in full and for which you are accountable to fulfill. Now, someone might say, but these commands you've mentioned, the commands of the Bible, they're general. How do I know God's will on the specifics? Well, God has not only revealed specific words to obey in his Bible, but also principles, principles to apply so that you may always act in love, wisdom, and the fear of God. For example, one guiding principle from the Bible appears in 1 Corinthians 6.12. 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now consider how useful this one verse is for making decisions about certain matters that the Bible does not address specifically. Should you have a Netflix subscription? Can you drink alcohol? What about smoking marijuana if it's legal in your state? Can you regularly sleep in until 2 p.m. in the afternoon? Well, these verses give two important principles to help answer questions like these. First, even if you're allowed to do it, will it prove spiritually profitable for you? And second, even if you're allowed to do it, does the activity have the strong probability of mastering you and distracting you from your fundamental devotion to Jesus Christ? Now, sometimes the answer is going to vary depending on the person. Sometimes they won't. As I sometimes say, certain questions have more than one right answer, but they don't have an infinite number of right answers. And there are many principles like these in the Bible so that even we who live in America in the 21st century can know what is God's will for us, what is God's revealed will, commanded will, even in the specific situations that we face. This is one of the reasons that we say that the Bible is sufficient for all of life and godliness, which is a principle we've seen, I think, again and again in our FOF series, especially from verses like 2 Peter 1, 2-4. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness in 2 Timothy 3.16, which mentions that it equips us for every good work. If there's anything you fundamentally need for life and godliness, God says, I've given it to you in the Bible, in my commands and in my principles. God's word comprehensively prepares us to face the problems of life in this world, even to make all our decisions. So now that we've clarified what we mean by God's will, let's ask our second question. How should we respond to the different aspects of God's will? Well, let me ask you. Oh, actually, uh, yeah, so if we're following along kind of in the flow of the book, this is on the next page, letter C, response to God's will. We'll ask two sets of questions here. How should you respond to God's sovereign will and God's desired will? I'm going to put those together because I think they, they fit most together. How should you respond to these aspects of God's will? What would you say? Yeah, faith, trust. That's got to be a big one. What else? Okay, obedience. Well, I mean, the sovereign will isn't so much commanded, um, but I think obedience we'll see a little bit later. Okay, gratitude. Yeah, thankfulness. That's a good one. What else? Yeah, Mike. For God's sovereign will? Yeah, so I think what Mike mentioned, uh, praying, know it, that fits more the other aspect of God's will. But for God's sovereign will, we've mentioned some good things already. Trust, thankfulness. Uh, Judy, you were going to say something? Yeah, worship. Um, Danny, what were you going to say? Yeah, uh, acceptance. Not just kind of like begrudging acceptance, but even glad acceptance. Uh, odd acceptance. 
holy fear should come upon us when we think about God's sovereign will and God's desired will. Now, I've only, in my brainstorming, only mentioned two of these things, but I think you, you guys came up with some other good ones. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6, I think, is a good prescribed answer to God's sovereign will, even his desired will. Trust in the Lord, trust in Yahweh with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. You can trust, you can depend on God rather than yourself, because he's sovereign, and you know that his desires are good. 1 Peter 4.19 says, 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore those who also suffer according to the will of God should entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Has God ordained your suffering? Then entrust your soul to God. He's working this out according to his secret plan, which you don't know, but you can trust him. He's good God. Ecclesiastes 3.14 talks about how holy fear and humility should come upon us when we think about God fulfilling his sovereign will even when we don't understand it. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take, away or take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. Proverbs 3.7 adds, Proverbs 3.7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So, but Steve also mentioned gratitude. We could put that up, up there as well. How about God's commanded will? How should we respond to God's commanded will? Some of you already gave some answers on this one. Yeah, you should obey that will. Learn it. Know it. Teach it to one another. And do it. Help one another to do it. Ephesians 5.17, which we already mentioned. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. One of the things I try and emphasize throughout my teaching here at the church is that, yes, you have an individual obligation, but it's not you, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. No, you need your brethren as well. And your brethren need you. That's actually prescribed. That's, that's part of God's commanded will in the Bible. Okay. So, in an overview fashion, we've answered our first two questions. Now it's time for the third. Practically speaking, how does God guide us in making decisions in our lives? Okay, we've got kind of the God side of it, and we know generally how we are to respond, but practically, more specifically, how should we make our decisions? We should, of course, be aware that God does guide us in fulfilling his sovereign will without our even noticing. Many times God is moving in our hearts and arranging the circumstances around us to accomplish his ultimate good pleasure. Proverbs 16.9 says, Proverbs 16.9, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord, Yahweh, directs his steps. You can probably testify, looking back over your life, how God directed you into certain places or to meet certain people or into certain ministries, and you didn't even realize it at the time, but you see now how it all turned out for your good and God's glory. Now, praise the Lord for that. However, what is to be your focus? Fulfilling God's sovereign will or fulfilling God's commanded will? His commanded will. Don't worry about the sovereign will. Remember, we've already said this. You will not miss God's secret sovereign will. Okay? Because God's sovereign will is always going to be accomplished. He doesn't need your help to do it. You're not going to miss it. You focus on what he told you to focus on. His commanded will. But does God guide you practically even there? He does. Though we must beware of expecting God to act with us in ways that he has not said he would act with us in terms of guiding us. <clears throat> Under Roman numeral 2, so going on to the next two pages, Roman numeral 2, part B, we see a chart comparing God's direct guidance with God's indirect guidance. And there have been times in biblical history when God gave direct guidance as part of fulfilling his commanded will. It was part of his revealed will. God spoke directly to a person, or he granted a revelatory vision or dream, or he sent a qualified and supernaturally verified prophet to deliver a command to a person. I think sometimes we feel like, that would be really great if God did that right now. That would be really clarifying for me. 
But as we've discussed in previous lessons, this is not the way that God operates right now. In fact, this is not the way God usually operates. It was kind of an anomaly, historically speaking, according to the biblical record, that he would do this. It's not that he can't do this, but the Bible leads us to expect that he does not. So if you're looking for the revealed will of God, don't look for a new prophecy, a vision, a dream, or a person who supposedly touch in touch with the divine will. That's not where you're going to find it. And don't look for God's commanded will in superstitious signs or providential circumstances. For example, in making a decision, don't open your Bible to a random page and say, God will surely answer me through this. That sounds pious, that sounds spiritual, but God has not promised that he works that way. You say, well, he's sovereign. He's going he's to make where my finger lands. He's going to make that exactly where he wants. Yes, but you don't know how to interpret that. There's no way to safely interpret God's message to you via this method because you're not letting God speak in the way he said he actually speaks, in context. You basically can make the Bible say whatever you want to say using that method. Or as another example, don't look at your circumstances don't look at your circumstances alone for signs of God's commanded will. Like if you're praying for a boyfriend or a girlfriend and somebody new moves in next door to you, don't interpret that as, this must be God's will. This is a significant other I should get to know. You don't know that. You don't know why God had the other person move in next to you. Maybe it was a test. And also, beware of trusting a feeling of peace as an indicator of God's will. Your elders cannot tell you how many times we have heard believers justify unbiblical, unwise decisions with, well, I prayed about it, and I feel peace over this decision. Your feeling by itself is not an indicator that you are obeying God's commanded will. Some people have peace when they are disobeying God. Others may feel a lot of turmoil even when they are obeying God. I mean, look at Jesus in the garden. Do you think he had peace And in that moment? I mean, in a certain way, yes, but he's sweating drops of blood. He's under tremendous stress. And yet he was fulfilling the will of God, the commanded, the revealed will of God. Fundamentally, God's commanded will is not revealed through your feelings. You need something more reliable. All right, but what, what is more reliable? How does God guide us, even by his spirit, to fulfill his commanded will today? It's not directly like it was in certain times in the past, but indirectly through four basic categories of guidance. And these are reflected on the right side of the column. I'll walk through them briefly. First and foremost, when needing practical guidance on and making decisions as to whether this fulfills God's revealed will, you must start with oh, sorry. You must start with God's word, the scriptures. You ask yourself, okay, I'm considering this decision, but what commands and principles of the Bible must I keep in mind in this decision? For example, if you're deciding whether to take a certain job or not, you should be asking your questions like. Will taking this job provoke me to sin, violate my conscience, or directly cause others to sin? Because the Bible commands against those things. Will taking this job still allow me to pursue other biblically commanded priorities, like serving my family and fellowshipping with and serving the church? Because those are commanded priorities in the Bible. Will taking this job actually enable me to care for my own family and still have something to give to others? Because maybe there's a job that you would like to do, but it simply will not help you pay the bills. Well, guess what? The Bible commands you, fulfill your own obligations, if at all possible, and then have something to give. That's commanded. That, those are principles from the Bible. And of course, there are others. Always in making decisions, start with God's word as a lamp to guide your feet in a dark and uncertain world. And the others are really going to flow out from this. God's word is your basis, but the others are just applications of things that the word says. Second, and I'm not going in the exact same order that's in your book, seek out, and when you're trying to make a decision, 
in the revealed will of God, seek out additional wisdom and counsel. Seek out additional wisdom and counsel. Now, this is not because the Bible is somehow not enough. It's an insufficient word. Because this is, this is rather because this is what the Bible itself commands. The Bible commends gathering relevant knowledge as you can in order to make decisions. And the Bible commends inviting the advice of wise people who know about the kind of situation you're in. Proverbs 12.15 says, Proverbs 12.15, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. You're not a wise person if you just say, all right, I'm going to go to the scriptures, I'm going, to, I'm going to figure out God's commands and principles, and that alone is what's going to help me determine my decision. Now, the Bible itself says you should also seek counsel. You should acquire additional knowledge if you can. So, for example, if you're trying to discern what is the spiritual gift with which you can serve God's people and God's church, don't just rely on your own analysis. Ask other people to discern what your gift is. And try even, especially if there's not enough information for others to give a recommendation, try out serving in different ways. Allow this to be a kind of research gathering. Try out serving in different ways and see what kind of service or what kind of service is you find yourself to be most skilled, most joyful, and most fruitful. Because there, God is guiding you to fulfill his will. Not his sovereign will, his revealed will. God wants you to exercise these principles. And of course, prayer goes along with this as well. You should be praying to God for wisdom and for good counsel. Now, understand how that comes to you. We're not really looking for God to just zap new knowledge into our minds. He hasn't promised that. But we're asking God to use the means he has ordained. God, give me a fuller understanding of your Bible and its wisdom and its principles. Give me a fuller understanding of this situation by my research, by my talking to people, and give me good counsel from others. Help me to discern what they're saying, whether that's really helpful or not. That's the way God fulfills our prayer for wisdom. So, if you're looking for God's guidance in specific decisions and situations, you're starting with the Word of God, you're asking for counsel and seeking additional wisdom, and a third way, the Spirit guides us in fulfilling the commanded will, is providence, or I would add the label opportunities. You say, wait, I thought you said we weren't supposed to look at providence. All right, let me explain. You should not use circumstances alone to try and figure out God's will. God's commanded will. But one of the principles of God's word is that we seek to make the most of our opportunities. We even saw this recently in Colossians, right? Colossians 4, 5. And Ephesians uh, says a similar principle. You want to make the most of your opportunities. So one of the avenues of guidance that you were to pay attention to, to pay attention to when making a decision are the opp opportunities presented to you. And ask yourself, how can I make the most of what I have and do my circumstances actually preclude me from acting in otherwise what would be good ways? For example, when we were in Los Angeles, when I was at the seminary, one of the kind of funny problems that Grace Community Church had, you know, it's the church John MacArthur connected with the seminary, is that they had too many people who were gifted in teaching. Because they got all these guys coming into seminary, they're, they're looking to exercise this gift, refine this gift, but guess what? There's already a ton of good teachers at the church. So these people, they may have gotten good counsel, they may be looking according to the qualifications and the recommendations of the word and saying, I, I believe I have this gift, God wants me to use this gift, but there's no opportunity to use it. They don't need it right now. So what is that person supposed to do? Just do nothing? Well, I guess God doesn't want me to serve. No, God commanded that you serve his people with whatever gifts he's given you. If you don't have the opportunity to use a certain gift in a particular place, well, see what other opportunities are there. Maybe there's another way that you can serve. Or, and in some cases, some of my seminary colleagues did this, they actually went and attended a different church. They say, you've got a ton of teachers here, that's great, but they're hurting for teachers over there, so... If I'm going to fulfill what the Lord has revealed for me to do, I want to pay attention to the opportunities, to the circumstances that God has given. So that's what I'm talking about. 
You are asking yourself in a situation, yes, I want to know what the Lord has commanded from his word. I want to get good counsel. But what are my actual opportunities? Because I want to make the most of those. And then finally, a fourth and final way the Spirit guides us in fulfilling the commanded will of the Lord is listed here as conscience or conviction. I kind of like conviction, but I also would use the term desires. You should pay attention to your desires to discern the will of the Lord. You say, what are you talking about? This one comes forth for a reason. If you really are been seeking, have been seeking the Lord's commanded will, if you've even sought good counsel, you've paid attention to your circumstances and looked at your opportunities, one question you should also ask yourself is, do I want to do this? Do I desire to do this? Because, brethren, one of the simplest principles of God's word is that when a choice is permitted to you by God, and when you're seeking to choose it for his glory, God actually says you should do as you like. Do what you would like to do. Do what you feel drawn to do. Do what is your conviction to do. I'm thinking about this from Romans 13 and 14 when it's talking about individual convictions in the church. Should I celebrate this day as a special holiday? Should I abstain from eating certain foods? Different people within that church were going to come to different conclusions as to what was going to honor God. Now, if they're exercising their proper principles, they're, they're thinking through that biblically, getting good counsel from one another, that's all good. But in the end, what is the counsel from Paul? Let each person be convinced in his own mind. Let him do what he wants. God is pleased with both of those choices. Or we could bring in Ecclesiastes again, Ecclesiastes 11.9. Ecclesiastes 11.9, Solomon writes, Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Now, if you've been with me before through Ecclesiastes, I don't interpret that as a sarcastic statement. Yeah, enjoy yourself, but you're going to pay for it later. No. Solomon's consistent message in that book is enjoy life. Enjoy life as a gift from God. So if you're young and you have an opportunity to enjoy certain things, you should do so, but always in the fear of God, recognizing that he is going to hold you accountable for it. So it is with us. God actually commands us that as we are seeking to conform ourselves to his will, when we've, in a sense, checked all the other boxes we can check, we should do what we enjoy. We should do what we want to do. Now, this has to be balanced with the other three. I'm not commending selfishness. The Bible's not commending selfishness. But God does validate our desires as a source of guidance. You can be confident that even when you say, I, I'm, I'm doing this not only because I think this fits with wisdom, but because it's, one, it's what I want to do. God says, that's what I want you to do. That's holy before me. You can do that to my glory. Some specific examples of this, applications for this. One of the qualifications for being an elder, one of the qualifications for pursuing pastoral ministry, according to 1 Timothy 3.1, is that you want to do it. 1 Timothy 3.1 says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. You shouldn't be an elder if you totally do not desire that work. Now, that could use a little bit of explaining. You say, oh, I don't desire the position. I don't desire the accountability. I don't desire the, the pain that comes with that. Well, those are, nobody desires that. That just comes with being a faithful Christian. But if you desire to shepherd and to teach and to evangelize and, and counsel, those are the things that you find joy in. God says, that is an additional piece of guidance that I'm moving you to fulfill my commanded will. Again, balance with the other three. Or here's another example. Maybe this will sound silly to you, but it's not silly to some people. A few times in my life, I have been asked by a young person, whether he should pursue a romantic relationship with someone that he does not find attractive. You know what my answer to that is? No! <laughs> Why would you do that? One of the commands of the Bible is that you rejoice in your spouse, including his or her appearance. Why would you make that command harder on yourself right from the start? Besides, I don't think that other person would want to be pursued in that way. You don't, you don't, you're not attracted to me? Why should we pursue a relationship? 
You should pursue a person that you actually want to pursue, who fits, yes, with the other things that the Bible says. Now, of course, there is, there is wisdom in being open to a person or a situation that you did not desire at first, but simply asking yourself, what do I desire? What am I attracted to? Where do I want to be? That's another important source of guidance. But these things, they, they need to all work together. And when you operate according to these things, the Spirit himself is actually guiding you to fulfill his revealed will of the Scriptures, because these are scriptural principles, scriptural guidances. I should say this also. Oh, and we, we uh, have to end. When you're making the decisions of your life, and, and you follow these things, you're still going to be taking some risk. You might say, well, I don't know if this is going to work out. I, I, this might bring trouble later. Yes, but you know what? God didn't ask you to make perfect decisions. You don't have the ability to do that because you're not all-knowing and all-powerful. All he asks you to do is to make wise decisions. And he said he'd take care of the rest. So you're using these principles. You're conforming yourself to his word as best you can. He says, good, that's all I've asked. I'll take care of the rest. All right, I'm sure there's more to say about that, but we have to end because the children's choir needs to come in and practice. By the way, if you could, right after the Sunday school class, please adjourn to the fellowship hall so that they have uh, their own space and uh, they don't give away their song. But that's it for today and for our FOF series. If uh, You should check the bulletin today for an announcement of our next Sunday school series. I hope that you'll sign up for that. We're going to be doing uh, the next level of our biblical counseling training. And I think that will prove very valuable for all the congregation, but especially for those who are married and those who are part of a family, which in one way or another is going to be all of us. So uh, look forward to the next Sunday School series that's going to be starting in January. But that's it. Let me close in prayer, and you can ask me questions afterwards. Lord God, thank you for guiding us. Thank you, Lord, that you have shown us your revealed will, and that's all we need to know. You can take care of the sovereign will, but we will trust you and, and give you reverence for it. But... Lord, you've shown us what we need to focus on. So empower us, Lord, to do your will. Help us to know your will. But also give us the, the faith to trust you as we seek your will. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, everyone.